One day, a precocious little girl asked her mother, where did humans come from? Her mother answered, well, God made the first human beings, and they had children who had children, and on and on, so all of humanity came to be. Two days later, the little girl asked her father the same question, and he said, well, many years ago, there were apes living on the earth, and these apes evolved into human beings. The little girl was very confused and returned to her mother and said, Mom, how is it that you said humans were created by God, and Dad said that we came from monkeys? The mother replied, dear, it's very simple, actually. I told you about my side of the family, and your father told you about his. Mothers have an incredible way of explaining the world to their children. It often sticks with us long into our adulthood, where we find ourselves quoting our mothers or saying something that we picked up from her along the way, even sometimes exclaiming, oh my God, I've become my mother. Every Mother's Day, I think about Tupac Shakur. I know that sounds incredibly random, but growing up in the 90s, I listened to a lot of music from the hip-hop artist who sang about his mother and the profound influence that she had on his life. Now, critics don't often credit hip-hop with garnering love and admiration for mothers or women, but Tupac was cut from a slightly different cloth. His song, Dear Mama, is a brutally honest assessment of the complicated relationship that he had with his mother and the pain that they caused one another throughout life. And yet, Tupac sings, When I was sick as a little kid, to keep me happy there's no limit to the things you did. And all my childhood memories are full of all the sweet things you did for me. And even though I act crazy, I gotta thank the Lord that you made me. And there's no way I can pay you back, but my plan is to show you that I understand. You are appreciated. And my favorite song, though, is Keep Your Head Up, where Tupac prophetically proclaimed, since we all came from a woman, got our name from a woman, and our game from a woman, I wonder why we take from our women, why we hurt our women, do we hate our women? I think it's time we kill for our women, time to heal our women, be real to our women, and if we don't, We'll all have a race of babies that will hate the ladies that make the babies. And since a man can't make one, he has no right to tell a woman when and where to create one. So will the real men get up? I know you're fed up, ladies, but keep your head up. It's not surprising to me that Tupac's mother was a revolutionary political activist, freedom fighter, and leader of the Black Panther Party. Born in Lumberton, North Carolina, she changed her name to Afene Shakur, which means grateful lover of her people. And she named her son Tupac after the revolutionary leader of an insurgent indigenous Incan rebellion in Peru that was waged for freedom against the Spanish colonizers. Mothers never get the credit they deserve for the influence they have on the lives of their children or the critical role that they play in shaping us to become who we are. A new book published this year by Anna Malika Tubbs entitled The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation seeks to change this deficiency. I gave this book to my mom for Mother's Day with the inscription to my first anti-racist teacher because she was the first person in my life to teach me to pursue justice for all people. 
Tubbs contends that like many black mothers, Alberta King, Louise Little, and Bernice Baldwin have been woefully ignored throughout American history for their colossal influence on the black freedom movement. She argues that their lives are worthy of renewed attention, not only because of the discrimination that they overcame as young black girls, but how they raised their boys up to become freedom fighters. The stories of these women are not only inspiring, they challenge us to wrestle with the very definition and purpose of motherhood. What does it mean to be a mother? Who are our mothers? What should we celebrate about motherhood? Does the Bible have anything to say about what it means to be a mother? For the most part, the church has failed miserably to answer these questions. When I was in seminary, I served as a youth and children's minister at a Baptist church in Raleigh that had a horrifying Mother's Day tradition. Every year, they gave out roses to all the mothers in the congregation, which seems like a sweet way to celebrate motherhood, but failed to consider how not receiving a rose would make the women in the congregation feel who weren't mothers or who didn't want to be mothers, or who wanted to be mothers, but couldn't be for whatever reason. And as if that was not bad enough, then during the service, they would invite three mothers up to the chancel to receive a special gift. I'm not kidding you. This is true. The oldest mother in the church, the youngest mother in the church, and my favorite, the mother in the church with the most children. Now, thank God, we never do anything like that at Myers Park. After suffering through this painful tradition three years in a row, I realized that many American Christians had transformed Mother's Day into a toxic celebration of female fertility. In our attempt to honor motherhood, we'd created a hierarchy of certain types of bodies. By dedicating an entire Sunday to celebrate what some women's bodies could do and others cannot, we transformed the church into a fertility cult. We had no idea the violence that we were causing many women and men, let alone transgender and non-binary people. And the sad irony is that we weren't actually celebrating motherhood at all, certainly not biblical mother. We were proclaiming that some bodies are blessed or better or more worthy or superior to other bodies. We thought we were celebrating motherhood, but we ended up worshiping at the altar of body supremacy. And I guess we shouldn't be surprised that the American church, which has been entrenched in patriarchy for 400 years, would find itself celebrating fertility instead of motherhood. You know, the amount of male pastors who have proof text Proverbs 31, over the years, as a way to control women's bodies and contort motherhood into an image that suits the desires and interests of men is far too large for us to count. What does the Bible actually say about motherhood? In Scripture, we actually find an extraordinarily diverse picture of motherhood. Motherhood as a community of practice and protection, preparation, education, and cultural development that involves all women in society and even some who identify as men. 
Biblically speaking, motherhood involves mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers, adoptive parents and stepmothers, sisters, aunties, cousins, and friends. Far from being limited to conceiving, birthing, and raising a biological child for one family, in Scripture, motherhood is a rich and textured tradition of women working together with others as a community to protect children from violence, prepare them for the pursuit of freedom, and raise children up to participate in God's struggle for the liberation of the oppressed. Motherhood in Scripture has a goal, and it is not fertility. It is freedom. Therefore, motherhood is a calling to join with other people in the practice of resistance to empire in the pursuit of freedom. The very idea of mothering in Scripture is tied explicitly to the narrative of Exodus, which is the most important story in the entire Bible, the paramount example of God's intervention in the world on behalf of her people. The Exodus story is referenced more than any other event in Scripture, and it provides the quintessential picture of God and the paradigm for salvation. God is the one who hears the cries of the oppressed and acts on their behalf for deliverance from the empire. Salvation, then, is not a spiritual idea alone, but physical and material. It is first and foremost deliverance from oppressive social systems in Egypt or anywhere else. Jewish philosopher Michael Walzer claims that this text has been the fountain of revolutionary faith and practice from 1400 BCE all the way up to today. It is no coincidence that enslaved Africans sang, Go down Moses, let my people go, and deep river, and wade in the water. It's no coincidence they called Harriet Tubman Moses and MLK Moses. It's no coincidence that black and Latin American and Asian American liberation theologians all base their theories of freedom in this story. Exodus is the paramount biblical story of freedom. Deliverance, liberation, and salvation. And it all began with mothers and midwives resisting the empire in order to protect and prepare children for the pursuit of freedom. There's only one adult man who appears in the first chapter of the book of Exodus, and that is Pharaoh. There are no positive male figures in this story until Moses grows up. In contrast, There are 12 women, 12 mentioned in the first two chapters alone. Shipra Pua, Moses' mother Yoshebed, and his sister Miriam, his adopted mother Pharaoh's daughter, the princess of Egypt, and then Jethro's seven daughters in Midian, including Zipporah, who would later become Moses' wife. If you don't think the author of Exodus was trying to make a point about the kind of people and the kind of community necessary for God to lay the groundwork for freedom, You're crazy. Midwives, mothers, adoptive parents, sisters, daughters, they're all here building the groundwork, laying the groundwork. And the first and most important of all the women listed are Shipra and Pua. The text tells us Shipra and Pua were Hebrew midwives, and both of those words need major explanation. At the time, the word Hebrew did not describe an ethnic group of Joseph's descendants living in Egypt. 
Only later would that word be used as a description for the people who would become known as Israel. Scholars tell us that in the ancient Near Eastern world, Habiru was a common designation for all types of marginal groups, outcasts and bandits, immigrants and refugees, mercenaries or fugitives living in any empire, especially in Egypt. Habiru could be used to refer to any group of people living inside the empire who had no social standing, no name, no land, and who was endlessly disrupting society with their needs. They were the lower class folks who were feared and excluded and despised. Walter Brueggemann calls them a floating mass of unacknowledged humanity and a conglomeration of socioeconomic nobodies. The story of Exodus here suggests that behind every political and ethnic conflict is the reality of class conflict. Those at the center, in power, oppressing those at the margins who are on the bottom. The haves alarmed and afraid of the presence and the insistent needs of the have-nots. Abiru was a word that described Shipra and Pua's social location, where they came from, but not necessarily their ethnicity. We don't know if they were married, their husbands are never named, if they had them, or if they had any connection to the descendants of Abraham. All we know is they were on the bottom of society, serving as midwives to all the other poor women. What was a midwife in Egypt? It was far more than a doula who aided women in giving labor. Midwifery in ancient Near Eastern culture was an extremely valued and prestigious occupation. It was literally the highest calling a woman could have in a patriarchal society. Not to mention, it was one of the oldest and most specialized professions in human society at the time. Midwives were trained in a variety of disciplines. Holistic medicine, gynecology, obstetrics, biology, horticulture, mental health, theology, and spirituality. They were considered to be physically and metaphysically in touch with the deepest elements in creation. It was commonplace for prayers and incantations and rituals to be offered as an integral part of the services that midwives provided. So they were not just doctors and healers. They were also priests. They possessed the technical and religious authority to lead women through that profound experience of bringing new life into the world, so much so that the midwives were often called wise women or magi, like the ones who came to visit Jesus. Even today, the words for midwife in French, German, and English still bear the etymology of wisdom that is indigenous and priestly. It was wildly understood that midwives had the ability to medically and spiritually transform a life-threatening situation into a joyous celebration of life. But there's no way two women could deliver all the children of the poor, Hebrews. As scholar Will Gaffney contends, they were most likely identified by Pharaoh because they were the leaders of an entire guild of women who were practicing midwifery in Egypt. And if Pharaoh could get them to buy into his genocidal plan, then it would certainly become a reality. Shipra and Pua remind me of the BBC show Call the Midwife about a group of midwives living and working in London. The series is based on the memoirs of Jennifer Worth, who worked as a midwife at the convent of an Anglican religious order in the east end of London in the late 50s and 60s. 
The midwives in the show tackle everything from the post-war baby boom to poverty, immigration, medical innovation, cystic fibrosis, caring for the terminally ill, the threat of nuclear war, as well as meningitis, dementia, racial abuse, and the introduction of the birth control pill and abortion. The show is a beautiful depiction of the sacred vocation of midwifery and a reminder that motherhood has always been a shared and communal endeavor and a stunning picture this show presents of the way that reproduction and women's health has always been a social and political issue. As Zora Neale Hurston once wrote, in Egypt, the birthing beds of the Hebrews were a matter of the state. The Hebrew womb had fallen under the heel of Pharaoh and they shuddered in terror at the indifference of their wombs to the Egyptian law. But the midwives in Exodus were less like those in London and more like June and the other women in the famous dystopian novel and television series, The Handmaid's Tale those who risked their lives to stand in resistance to a cruel empire by smuggling more than 165 children successfully out of the oppressive patriarchal regime of Gilead, off into safety in Canada. Like the handmaids, Shipra and Pua were resistors. They refused to follow Her Pharaoh's orders or participate in state-sanctioned violence or to go along with his plans of genocide. They were incredibly brave and sacrificed their lives for the sake of others, but they were not just courageous. They were also cunning and clever. They used Pharaoh's own cultural bias about the Hebrews against him to protect future generations. Shipra and Pua said, I don't know, Pharaoh. The Hebrew women are brutish and animalistic and not refined. They're like beasts. We can't get to them before they give birth. Their babies just drop out of them before we get there. Shipra and Pua subverted Pharaoh's schemes by employing the sacred knowledge that Pharaoh did not possess, but that they had gathered through a lifetime of midwifery. Strategically, they tricked and deceived him by talking about the things of women, things he would never understand. And this is how freedom always begins. It begins with the courageous and cunning intervention of brilliant and resourceful midwives and mothers, sisters and daughters. The liberation of the Hebrew people begins with Shipra and Pua. They likely did not have children of their own, but they were the mothers of a revolution waged by women. They enlisted untold numbers of mothers in their resistance movement of saving babies. And when Pharaoh turned genocidal again, other women Yoshebed and Miriam followed the lead of Shipra and Pua by disobeying the orders of the state and putting three-year-old baby Moses in a basket in the Nile River to save his life. Their resistance set the stage for all who followed. In fact, Moses was not only saved by these women, but he also learned to love his people, to resist the empire, and pursue freedom from his mother and his sister. These women became the first deliverers in the great book of deliverance. They were the first resistors in God's movement of resistance. They were the first freedom fighters in God's uprising for liberation. On Mother's Day, it is not appropriate for us to celebrate fertility. The church is not a fertility cult. 
But motherhood was never about fertility anyway. It was always about freedom. We cannot worship fertility and follow a Jesus who proclaimed, who is my mother and brother? And then pointed to the disciples and said, here are my mother and brother. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. God's will is freedom, which means whoever gives birth to freedom is a mother. God's will is liberation, which means whoever is leading children and youth to liberation is a mother. God's will is salvation, which means whoever is leading in the salvation of the oppressed is a mother. This is why it is appropriate not only to celebrate birth mothers, but adoptive mothers and foster mothers and stepmothers and godmothers and heart mothers and aunties and cousins and single fathers and friends and children's ministers and youth pastors and transgender and non-binary parents and everyone who mothers in the Lord on Mother's Day because according to the Bible and according to Jesus, anyone, and I mean anyone, who is working to protect God's people and prepare God's people for the pursuit of freedom can be a mother. We are not just called to be midwives of biological children. We are called to be midwives of resistance, midwives of deliverance, midwives of salvation, midwives of freedom, and midwives of liberation for all the Hebrew people in our world today. Mother's Day should be about protecting children and preparing them for the pursuit of freedom, not fertility. And so we celebrate all those who are mothers and midwives of freedom today. And we commit ourselves again to follow their lead because we know freedom is God's will. And there can be no freedom without justice and peace. Which you might not know is actually what Mother's Day was created for in the first place. As Julia Ward Beecher, I mean Julia Ward Ho proclaimed in 1870 on her the very first Mother's Day, she said, Arise then, women of this day. Arise, all people who have hearts, whether our baptism be that of water or of tears. Say firmly, we will not have great questions decided by irrelevant agencies. Our husbands shall not come to us reeking with carnage for caress and applause. Our sons shall not be taken from us to unlearn all that we have been able to teach them of charity, mercy, and patience. From the bosom of the devastated earth, a voice goes up with our own. It says, disarm, disarm. The sword of murder is not the balance of justice. Blood does not wipe out dishonor, nor violence vindicate possession. As men have often forsaken the plow and the anvil at the summons of war, now let women and men and every person leave all that may be left of home for a great and earnest day of counsel. Let them meet first to bewail and commemorate the dead. Let them then solemnly take counsel with each other as to the means whereby the great human family can live in peace each bearing after their own kind the sacred empress, not of Pharaoh or of Caesar, but of God. Amen.